Hi there, I'm Dan, and welcome, or welcome back, maybe, to the Shaw Vineyard Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take just a moment to subscribe in iTunes or in your podcast app of choice. That way, you can get every message from our church straight away on whatever device best suits you. You know, it's our hope that the message that you're about to hear in this episode would encourage you to take your best next step in your faith journey. So let's get straight into it. I want to share with you guys tonight a really ancient story. It starts a few thousand years before Jesus. And the reason being that I think in this story, we might unearth something about how to face the crisis that we're in in the world today. And I think it's fair to say that we're in a crisis, right? I think it's fair to say we're in something of a social crisis, something of an economic crisis, certainly of an environmental crisis, um, a political crisis. But I think as well as a church, we're facing a spiritual crisis, a religious crisis. We're trying to find out who we are in the face of a culture that is very is becoming more and more post-Christian, uh, post-modern, what is truth, post-truth, all of these kinds of things. We're trying to discover who are we in the midst of this world. When we look out there and, and even amongst ourselves, sometimes we don't even see the greatest love being outworked between us, right? Well, there was a guy who lived 2,000 years ago and he was a bit of a controversial character because he was responsible for killing some of the early Christians. He kind of signed the contract, so to speak, if they had those back then. And his name was Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And one day he is going down the road on his horse, trotting along um, with a little cart behind him or a chariot or something. And he has this vision and all of this light comes around him. And the very uh, person he was persecuting, Jesus, the very one that he disdained and hated and wanted to see rid of the face of the earth speaks to him and says, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul becomes this revolutionary and he starts preaching the gospel and he starts making these radical statements and turning the whole kingdom upside down. In fact, sometimes he would go to towns and riots would break out. That's how powerful this guy, I mean, you think Rob Bell's bad. This guy, it's a good Rob Bell joke. It's always how I test the waters. Um, it comes to this point, there's this, this town called Ephesus, and he writes this amazing statement. He's encouraging the church, he's writing letters. He's been imprisoned, he's been beaten, and he writes this amazing thing. But we are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's masterpiece. That word masterpiece in the Greek is poema. It may sound Vaguely familiar to you for a good reason. Poema is where we get our modern translation or our modern term poetry from. We are God's poetry. Poema is used twice in the New Testament. It's a Greek word and both times it refers to a masterpiece, a work of art. Something deliberate, something beautiful, something good and something true. So Paul's turning this whole world upside down by saying, you are the poetry of God beautiful work of God. Now to understand just how radical this is, we need to go back another few thousand years to the ancient Near East. Now the ancient Near East is a place where we get lots of pioneering poets. In the ancient Near Eastern world, language and art, it was very strong. And in these cultures, the earliest cultures that we can find describing poets, poets and prophets were the same thing. If you were a 
poet in your community, you were considered not just to be clever or artistic, like maybe today, or just strange or poor. Um, You were actually the prophet of your community because it was thought that if you could speak in this language, you were close to the gods. You were a divine. You had this mystical quality to you that nobody else pertained. So as you can imagine, like it is today, back then, there were very few poets and they were highly sought after people. And then a few years later, this uh, boom in philosophy started. This guy called Plato created this philosophy called mimesis. And mimesis was this way of understanding art as a paradigm for communicating to everybody else beauty, goodness, and truth. Plato is one of the founding fathers, or the founding father, depending on who you talk to, of philosophy. And he was really strong that if you wanted to know, if you wanted to represent reality, it had to be good, beautiful, and true. Because we all know beautiful things that aren't good, right? Maybe we don't. You're looking very blank at me. Uh, Something can be beautiful, but not true. Uh, You can have a beautiful person making beautiful statements and then going back in their life and enslaving others, for example. Um, You can have something that's true that's not good or beautiful. I hate you might be true, but it's not good or it's beautiful. You catch what I'm saying? So to be to be true, the true reality, Plato suggested you had to have all of these three things. And he created this thing called mimesis. Now, the ones who could do this for all of their culture, according to the early philosophy, was the artists. Artists because they were considered by the ancient Aries divines, but in Plato's day, it was they were the ones who could best represent nature. And then his, uh, his successor, Aristotle, took it a little bit further. And he said, it's not just imitation of these things, it's exaggeration. It's taking these things and exaggerating so boldly to the rest of the world that it gives them something inspirational to follow, right? Mimesis. Aristotle in his books, in his book Poetica, wrote this. May all, poets and musicians may all be said to be representatives of life. That's a pretty bold statement. Imagine if you said that these days. That would be bad news, I think, based on our music videos quality. So time goes by, and then this philosophy develops into all cultures. And actually, by the time we get to Jesus, the Hebrew culture had adopted mimesis. The intertestamental writings and the Septuagint and some of the Apocrypha include themes of mimesis and discussions around mimesis. Mimesis had grown in Roman theology, philosophy to not just be representing life, but to be representing the gods. So over time, you have this slow development of this class of, so to speak, religious leaders who were specially gifted to translate God to everybody else. And everyone would come to small rooms on their Sunday nights to listen to these people tell them about God. Sound familiar? I made that last bit up. Right? There's a class going on. And then Jesus comes, and just as a side note, Jesus, the ultimate example of mimesis, right? He is the truth, the beauty of God, not just in representation, but incarnate. He is. He comes and he shows us what it looks like to live a life of beauty, goodness, and truth. And he turns the world upside down. He does this amazing magic trick called resurrection. No one had ever done it before. I don't think anyone's, no, no one has done it since. It was a pretty bold move. And then the whole world is turned upside down. You come back to Ephesians with Paul. And Paul says this amazing thing to this metropolis city, Ephesus, where you had all of these trade routes going in and out. 
Ephesus was a place that was an absolute hot pot of different religions and philosophies and ideas. It was kind of like, uh, I don't know, maybe like in New York or something. New York? Like what LA is to music, Ephesus was to religious concepts and cultures. And Paul drops this atom bomb. He says, no longer is it just a select few. No longer is it just the artists. No longer is there just some other class of people who get to be intimate with God and interpret divinity to the world. We are, you are the poetry of God. That is an amazing statement to make. And it is the equivalent of saying, you are the pop star, number one pop star of our day. You are that famous, creative, beautiful, epic dancing singer. You are the ones created in Christ Jesus who get to take this beautiful, true and good God and reinterpret it back to the world. It's been taken out of the hands of a few and given to the world. So what does that mean though? What does it mean to be the poetry of God? Someone once challenged me at the end of one of these nights saying, you know, it's all good for you. You're all arty, farty, schmarty character, but what does this really mean? It's like, cheers, bro. I want to read you this quote from Eugene Peterson. And every time it says poets, or I say poets, imagine he's talking about you. So you can close your eyes if you want to, or you can follow the words. I'll I'll read it out. Poets tell us what our eyes blurred with too much gawking and our ears dulled with too much chatter miss around and within us. Poets use words to drag us into the depth of reality itself. They do it not by reporting on how life is, but by pushing and pulling us into the middle of it. Poetry grabs for the jugular. Far from being cosmetic language, it's intestinal. It's root language. Poetry doesn't so much tell us something we never knew as bring into recognition what is latent, forgotten, overlooked, or suppressed. How beautiful is that? What he's saying is poetry awakens the truth and the good and the beauty that already exists in others and in the world. It's more than just prose. It's more than just rhetoric and information. It's this stomach-to-stomach, intestinal, gripping life demonstrated to the world, inviting them into something meaty and true and good. That's what it means to be the poetry of God. I'm, so I've written songs since I was a young man and ever... If you ever hear one of the top songwriters in the world, you get them in a room. I've sat with guys who have written for Britney Spears and all that kind of stuff. And they all say the same thing. A great song doesn't tell, it shows. Great song doesn't tell, it shows. And what they mean by that is metaphor and imagery and language and story communicate truth in a far greater and more powerful way in music than just facts. How many of you guys have ever been to a concert or listened to the radio and you find yourself crying about some song and you're like, this is amazing. And the first thing that comes out of your mouth is, I am so grateful for the new facts the song has communicated to me. Anyone ever felt that? Has anyone ever like cried during a song and had no idea why? Anybody? Just me, right? Or been to a concert and you walk away and you just feel like you've been lifted up out of yourself. You ever felt that? What is that? That's us encountering something of what it means to be the poetry of God, what it means to be the living song of God, 
I think this is the vision for humanity, the Imago Day, to be found not just as knowledge buckets who know things, but as people who live in such a way that we are like that song, that when people come into connection with us in our communities, all of that crisis pales in the light of the love and the welcoming they feel. How beautiful would that be? Songs are intangible. I did a show in Texas. I did a tour in Texas a couple of weeks ago and I was really nervous about it because I've been very sick. I've had chronic sickness for three years. And so I went from singing, kind of doing nine, 10, 11, 12 tours a year to spending nine months a year in bed. And uh, so I've done like maybe two or three tours in the last 18 months. And uh, I came back from this last tour last year feeling really well. So I booked another one the week that I came back. (laughs) It was crazy. And then I was sick for another seven months. And so I was really nervous about going. And I had these three shows with this guy, Josh Garrels. And they just happened to be some of the biggest shows that I've ever done. So that's great. And before I left, I couldn't sing. I hadn't been able to sing for seven months. And I stand up on this stage. And I was praying about it in the afternoon. And uh, I said, God, what do you want to do tonight? Because I... I kind of need you to do something because I don't think much good's going to come out of this. And all I saw was this, this feeling or the sense of God moving across the auditorium and saying, just watch for me. Don't try and bring something out of yourself. Watch for what I'm doing and then follow. Anyways, halfway through the set, I tell the story and the story kind of opened up a bit of a can of worms and I realized it and I was like, dope. And I didn't have a song to follow it with. So I just started playing my guitar. This is kind of what I do when I don't know what to do on stage. I just kind of like, what am I going to do? I, I blank out real bad. It's an amazing thing to watch. And it gets really quiet because everyone's like, oh, he doesn't know what he's doing. And I'm like, the longer it goes on, the more blank my mind gets. And I'm standing there and I'm strumming these chords and I'm like, oh, I've got a word. So I just sung a line and then the line turned into another line and then another line and I sang for five minutes. Three verses, two choruses, a bridge, back into the same chorus and done, right? I've never done it in my entire life. But I had a feeling when I started, I was like, oh my gosh, this is that moment. And the song, I can't remember the lyrics, it's gone forever. But I remember that it was something along the lines of, um, where my heart is like an open wound, let your tears flow like a river through my soul. And when my mind is dull and unable to find you, let your love flow through it like a river. And then I just kind of sung these songs, these words. And afterwards, um, this guy, so I went out the front afterwards to just say hello to people. And as I'm leaving, this guy just grabs me on the arm. And he says to me, hey, my name's such and such. Just quickly, um, I want you to know I have wanted to give up my life for 18 months. And I have hated life. I have... uh, I don't know if he's, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he talked about suicide. And he said, I can't, I couldn't go on. And he said, during one of your songs tonight, I felt the presence of God for the first time. And I knew I'm going to live now. And I text my friends and I said to them, I'm okay. I can live now. And then he just walked out the door. I was like, I think I said, I love you, man. <laughs> he was like, what? Oh, I love you too. <laughs> it was so awkward. I was like, that just came out. <laughs> That's what it means to be the poetry of God. I don't understand that. It's mysterious. Um, two more stories. Uh, we So part of something that our community does, we have uh, this place, a building in, the, in central Auckland that gives out food to people um, twice a week uh, through someone there who's got this amazing initiative. And we did this opening night there. Backtrack. First story. I was about to tell the second story. I'll tell the first story. 
18 months ago, I'm speaking at church a little bit like this. This guy comes up to me at the end and he's kind of like crying and stuff like that. I'm like, this is great. You know when people cry in church and you're like, yeah, God's real. <laughs> you don't want happy people in church. You want crying people. Um, well, he was crying and I was like, oh, what's, you know, how's it going? And he's like, man, you just need to pray for me. And I pray for him and then he's shaking and I'm like, this is just great. Um, and he has like a really full on time. So afterwards I said to him, what's your story, man? Tell me a story. And he tells me the story. Five years ago, I started a journey with drugs and alcohol. And at the same time, I started a journey into oneness meditation and astro travel and uh, the likes, which is kind of a way of getting outside of your body to connect with the spiritual realm for anybody who doesn't know what astro travel is, which I imagine is most of you. And he was getting deeper and deeper into this oneness meditation, trying to devour himself into the universe to become a truly spiritual being. And halfway through this experience, so he would get high on LSD for, for days, right? Three days, and he would have these experiences that he would encounter, encounter things. And one day he's having this encounter, and he sees a um, doorway in the sky, and he starts floating up towards the doorway. And he's getting closer, and he's like, this is it. This door opens. And I think it was something like he hears a voice say to him, you come through, you'll have all the power in the world, or something like this. And he's, he's approaching this door, just before he's about to enter this door, he remembers this old scripture from way back in the day. The devil has come to kill and destroy, but I have come to give life. Now, this guy's not a Christian, but he goes, huh, I can't go through this door. This door's not good for me. This door will kill me. And he comes back down and he freaks out. He kind of comes off the drugs and he goes, what's going on with my life? Anyways, he's kind of processing this and uh, one night he's just banging on the door and it's his flatmate. And his flatmate says, hey, are you okay? He says, no, I'm not okay. I've been doing lots of drugs, lots of meditation. It's not going well. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And, uh, and so his flatmate says, well, you know, the only natural thing to say, have you ever heard of demons? <laughs> no, he says, tell me what demons are. So his flatmate explains it to him lays hands on him, prays for him, and all these demons start flying out of him, right? He's like, I feel better. What was that? And so the flatmate's like, well, have you ever heard of Jesus? No. What's, you know, like, well, yeah, kind of. Well, what is Jesus? Well, preaches the gospel to him, leads him to Christ, and Bob's your uncle. 18 months later, he finds himself kind of after a bit of a journey, finds himself in our community, has an experience with God, and starts committing to a life of following Jesus walking in his life, the poetry of God, God outside the boundaries. The second story, we're launching this, um, this, this hall, this community hall in town. And as I'm leaving the, the, the evening, there's a woman standing at the door and she just says, this is a great thing you, you're doing. That's really awesome. You know, I'm, I'm really stoked to see somebody doing something in this community. And I was like, yeah, that's, it is kind of cool. Eh? It's pretty, I don't know how it's going to work out, but it's good fun. And uh, she's like, yeah, yeah, well, you know, I've, I've got friends around here. I know that it's, it really needs God here. Um, and I said, oh, you know, yeah, I used to work here. I'm a sole trader. I worked for myself for 10 years ago. Okay. And I'm like, oh, so where did you work? And she kind of points down the road and she says, um, just there, yeah, this place down the street there. And I was like, that place? The one that says, you know, that name with the flashing light? And she's like, yeah, yeah, I was, I worked as a sole trader doing sex work for 10 years. I was like, oh. Okay, <laughs> didn't quite know what to say. I was like, that's great, because she'd already told me she'd been a Christian for 10 years. And I was like, okay, well, so how was that? How was it being in that job and being a person of faith? 
And she said to me the strangest thing. She said, you know what? God never confronted me with it because he knew I wasn't ready to hear it. Right? I was like, that's amazing. I mean, I'd, I'd met this person a few times before, and God was really in her life. Like, you know when you meet people and you just know that God is really alive in someone? And I was a bit dumbfounded. And I said, well, okay, well, what are you doing now? I said, oh, I'm studying. I'm like, oh, so God obviously did speak to you. She said, no, no, I just ran out of money. I was like, huh. And she said, the next breath, you know what? I think we should plant a church here. I was like, <laughs> We should plant a church here for the sex workers. Because sex workers, 90% of the sex workers I've worked with are people of faith. And they love God. And they talk about God all the time. This is not my words. I said, that's amazing. I said, what would, how would we do a church like that? What would that even look like? Like, I don't know how to do that. What would that look like? She said, you know what? At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter as long as you have lots and lots of worship. They love worship in the presence of God. I was like, huh, okay. So how do you know, how did you get connected with this community? This is my line of thought. Like, I'm just processing this stuff. She says, well, like, I got a, um, a friend who comes here, and I said, that's cool. And uh, she was like, yeah, it's actually a really funny story. Like, um, I was hearing this banging in my room, uh, in my flat every night, like these two guys having a bar fight, like someone throwing themselves against the wall. And, uh, and I banged on the door to wake them up. And when they came out, it, they were just asleep. And they were like, what are you doing? Oh, I thought, are you okay? Like, yeah, fine, I'm just asleep, don't wake me up. And then the next night, she hears bang, bang, so throwing herself at the wall, she goes in there, are you okay? No, 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 I'm just asleep. Like, Something's wrong. So the next night, bang, 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 same thing, she knocks on the door, he opens up the door and she says to him, mate, are you okay? And he says, no. No, I've been doing a lot of drugs lately and doing this oneness meditation and I'm not Okay. She says the only logical thing she knows how to say. Have you ever heard of demons? No. Well, let me pray them out. Praise the demons out of them. So do you know Jesus? Do you need Jesus in your life? No, I don't know Jesus. So she preaches in the gospel, lays hands on him, leads him to Jesus, and goes to work. Not my story. Amazing, right? I don't know what to do with that. I still don't. But it's the story of God. And then I open the book of Luke, and what do I discover? Elijah being born to a barren woman, a social reject in those days, seen as cursed by God. And then Jesus born to a virgin, Mary, someone who probably should have been stoned by the law for being pregnant at all. And then the people he knows say that he's from Satan, and the demons and other people call him the Christ. So the people he came to try to kill him the first time, and the demons tremble before him and confess who he is. And then a guy's dropped down from a roof and he's sick. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And everyone, first of all, is looking around saying, you never asked for forgiveness. And secondly, who the heck are you, dude? Jesus' radical love, the radical love of God works in ways that are intangible. It's intestinal. There is something about God in the kingdom of heaven I believe wants to break out in our communities at the moment, that is beyond our ability to understand because that's where he lives as God. That's what it means to be the poetry of God. In the 1600s, there was this philosopher called Descartes. And Descartes was commissioned by the church to prove the existence of God. 
pretty cool. Imagine if churches still did that today. Here's some cash, mate. Richard Dawkins, go prove the existence of God. Descartes was a very clever philosopher in an age called the Age of Cynicism. And he went into his man cave, grew a beard, ripped all his nails out. This is how I'm, I'm now imagining this. And he comes up with this statement when he comes out, when he's trying to determine what is the basis of, of human knowledge and understanding of the universe, he says, I know what it is. I think, therefore I am. And with this one statement, we are knowledge beings. We exist because we think and we know he started something called the age of reason, the great modern movement, which sparked the modern movement of science. But it also had this other effect. We threw out experiential knowledge. We threw out what we couldn't understand. So you may not have noticed, but it's not the most popular thing anymore to say when someone says, so why do you believe in God? And you say, because I felt him. <laughs> have you ever said that to someone? Well, I felt him. Well, he just, he, he's real. Didn't you know that? I felt him. <laughs> it doesn't generally go down that well because we are postmoderns. We are coming off the back of a civilization that has been writing left to right on pieces of paper, studying facts, believing in Newton's laws, being industrialists, thinking that everything must have a rational explanation. Otherwise, it's not true because of Descartes, I think, therefore I am. The problem is God doesn't fit that box. I don't know if you've noticed is there anyone here who knows everything about God? No, I swear, every day I feel like God proves how little I know about Him. Yet we can know Him in the same way that I can sit with my wife. I've known her for 10 years, and I can tell you one thing. I've never needed to study her dental records, her high school marks. I've never had to read her journals as a young person to know who she is. I've just had to sit with her over a meal. Before I wanted to marry her, I didn't sit down all of her friends and study her life. I spent time with her because experiential knowledge is at the center of human existence, right? That's what it means to be the poetry of God. New Testament puts it this way. You and I, we are the body of Christ. In other words, when someone encounters us, they're encountering the intestinal, redemptive love of God. How, how do you explain that? You can't. So what is the answer to the crisis that we face? Postmoderns, rational beings, a church and spiritual religious crisis. What do we do with people we don't understand? What do we do when we don't have the answers or when we disagree on the answers? When we look at the news and one religious group, one Christian group saying this and another Christian group saying that. What do we do when we're divided into 32,000 different Protestant denominations and we can't even worship together because of one fringy theology? What do we do? in a postmodern world fractured by Descartes. We live as a poetry of God. We live experientially as well as rationally. We live a life of prose and poetry. Prose being the things we can know and understand. I love science to study science all the time. I love the scriptures. I fully believe that Jesus said straightforward things like, love your enemy and love your neighbor. But he also said, the kingdom of heaven is like a loaf of bread or a man with some seeds. I mean, try and pin Jesus down on what the kingdom of heaven is like. You know, one third of scripture is poetry. Did you know that? An entire third of scripture is poetry. Another third of scripture is visions, dreams, and stories or learnings related to those visions and dreams. Eat that modernism. What do you do with that? When God wants to say something to his people, he sends these weird prophets who walk around naked for three years 
And you're supposed to understand that? Dude, put it away, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and they come with this language that the Hebrew prophets were thought to be so the, founding, the founders of the modern po- po- mov- poetic movement. They were brilliant. Poets. I mean, if you and I wanted to, if I say something to my kids, I tell you what, it's like, boys, look me in the eyes. Listen, right? And then I say something as simple as I can. You will lose your cookies if you don't clean your room. I don't go, your father, this household rules is like a loaf of bread rising in the bedroom. <laughs> if you don't eat it, it goes off. I don't know. Don't ever share that with your kids. and That would scare them. But do you know what I mean? But this is how God chooses to communicate with us. Why? Because the second he gives us law, what do we do? We fight over it. But when he gives us story or poetry or beauty or truth or goodness, he removes our ability to say that person is good and that person is not good. God loves that person and he doesn't love that person. God loves the Baptists, but not the Catholics. God loves the Anglicans, but not the Vineyarders. Can you say that? I don't know. Living as the poetry of God helps us to overcome these things. I want to read this to you and... uh, I picked up this book in Tyroa. When I started this tour, doing the Prose to Poetry tour, I, I got hammered in Wellington, someone challenging me over some stuff, saying, well, you know, you're arty-farty, none of this makes any sense to the common man. And I was like, oh, man, am I doing the right thing? So I found this book amongst all of the crockery, casserole, 80s recipe books that you find. And there was just so many in Tyroa. If you love 80s crockery casseroles, you should go to Tyroa. And it's called 101 Famous Poems. So I bought it. I was like, this is a great thing to read. There's not a decent poem in it. But the preface, the preface of this book is amazing. And I wanted to read it to you because when I read this preface, I feel like it, it said it in a way that I have spent 30 minutes trying to say it. And it's by a guy called Roy J. Cook. And he says this, This is the age of science, of steel, of speed in the cement road, the age of hard faces in hard highways. Science and steel demand the medium of prose. Speed requires only the look, the gesture. What then, what need then for poetry? Great need. There are souls in these noise-tired times that turn aside into unfrequented lanes where the deep woods have harbored the fragrances of many a blossoming season. Here the light, filtering through perfect forms, arranges itself in lovely patterns for those who perceive beauty. There are souls in these noise-tired times that turn aside into unfrequented lanes. I feel like that's our invitation. The highways and the byways. I think we live in a noise-tired world world that has heard so much information, even the gospel, yelled at them. They're used to a rational world, but what they are not used to is an invitational Jesus. Come to the table and experience me and find that I'm good, beautiful, and true. (laughs) 
And once again, thanks for listening. And if you're in the Forest Hill or the Bays area of Auckland's North Shore, we would so love to have you at our next service this Sunday. You can get details on service times and more info on our kids and student environments by visiting svc.org.nz. That's svc.org.nz. Hope you have a great day and we'll see you next time here on the podcast.